Yes, that was indeed the Russian national anthem for the outro music. And wouldn't you know it, somebody else is writing a book about about, uh, Donald Trump and Russia. And in this case, it is the former FBI deputy director, Peter Strozik, who got into some hot water when his disparaging comments about Trump's in an email surfaced. Anyway, he's got a new book out, which uh, traces his arc from a veteran's counterintelligence agent to the man who came to embody Trump's public scorn for the FBI and his characterization of its Russian investigation as a witch hunt. In his book, Strozik points out that as the investigation progressed into Russia, he came to regard the Trump administration's actions regarding Russia as highly suspicious and the president as compromised by Russia, including because of what Strozik says were Trump's repeated efforts to mislead the public about dealings with Moscow. Those concerns deepened after Trump fired James Comey as FBI director and bragged to a Russian diplomat that great pressure was removed. That interaction was like a five-alarm fire, Strozik says, and the FBI began investigating whether Russia and the FBI began investigating whether Trump himself was under Russian sway. It's a question that just seems won't go away. You know, we, we never really meant for uh, this program to, to, to evolve into the Donald Trump slash coronavirus program. But my God, we have an election coming up. Uh, Trump's actions have uh, killed tens of thousands of Americans, or more properly, actions and inactions. I got to say, I was a little bit encouraged by, by this whole news cycle today and seeing Joe Biden come forward and pointing the finger accurately at Trump for what he has uh, failed to do and let the public down. It's a pretty doggone good speech and the kind of thing we need to hear more of out of uh, Joe Biden. Of course, he started spoiling it by talking about all the wonderful things he was then going to do, which unfortunately reminded me of what it is we're actually getting in Joe Biden. But you know what? What we're getting in Joe Biden mainly is not Donald Trump. And that, no matter how you look at it, is a tremendous plus. You know, I think since we did the last program, Mr. Millen, this whole issue of Trump uh, disparaging the military uh, came out. Correct. It's hard to believe. That was just a few days after the last program, and it's already, like, receding into the back of the news cycle, but it shouldn't. Trump clearly doesn't understand why anybody would ever have uh, <laughs> any, any sense of obligation to something higher than his own person. So naturally, he would regard people who died in military service as chumps and losers. This article in The Atlantic has now been backed up by multiple other sources. There are many, many references to Donald Trump uh, disparaging people in the military, perhaps most offensively when he was at the, the funeral of one of his, uh, what was his aide, and he made the comment uh, at, you know, about the, his fallen son of, you know, what was in it for him? But I think my, my favorite part is that Donald Trump has now said in a tweet, I never called John a loser and swear on whatever or whoever I was asked to swear on, I never called our great fallen heroes anything other than heroes. Someone sent this out as a meme, juxtaposed with a Donald Trump. Someone sent this out as a meme. The top part, of course, is dated 9-3-20. Uh, the other part of the meme is another Trump tweet from seven eighteen fifteen, which says the following. John McCain is a loser. There's an op-ed piece by David Brooks we want to cite. We're going to just mention it in passing today and, and talk about it at greater length in the programs to come because this is maybe the great issue of, of our day. The title of the article is, What Will You Do If Trump Doesn't Lead Office? If Trump Doesn't Leave Office. I'm just going to cite his conclusion to the piece where he says, The process of mobilizing for an accurate election outcome before it's too late 
would be a struggle to preserve the order of our civic structure against the myriad foes who talk blithely about tearing down systems, disorder, and disruption. It may be how we rediscover our nation again. It's time to start thinking about what you would do. And indeed, dear listener, it is. It is time for all of us to start thinking about what we will do. We're also open to your suggestions on this. If you want to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com, we'd, we'd like to hear what you've got to say. I know it's Mr. McMillan's personal hope that some of these military losers might escort Trump off the premises uh, in the event of his uh, refusal to go. I'm sure there's quite a few at this point that would be willing to do just that, and hopefully an ever-increasing number as the word gets out that, you know, he really did say these things. He really does have that attitude. This is Serious Business, the cover of The Economist. This week's issue is America's Ugly Election. Subheadline, how bad could it get? The Economist reminds us that in his final debate with Clinton in 2016, Trump refused to commit himself to accepting the results of the upcoming election. And the following day, he made his position clear, saying, I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election, he said with mock solemnity before adding with a finger-wabbing emphasis, if I win. The Economist notes there can be no real doubt that should he indeed lose, he's going to claim the election was stolen. Michael Cohn points this out too and notes Trump does not have a sense of humor. He does not tell jokes. When he says he thinks he, you know, should be president for the next 12 years, he's not joking. And in the event of election chicanery, we'll have more to say about that Economist article in the future. But, you know, The Week magazine has on its cover, Playing at Civil War. Subheadline, as extremists and vigilantes battle in the streets, how will it affect the election? Well, we're under threat of physical violence, depending on the outcome. A long piece in The Last Word in the week. It was actually an article that originally appeared in the Washington Post about the growing threat of violence in America, noting that armed right-wing groups are coming to left-wing protests ready to fight. The piece is by Tim Craig. They note that police in Texas and all across the country are struggling to contain the confrontation. Not struggling very hard, it appears, in some cases when the police sort of stand by and let uh, vigilantes and militants show up to rough up the crowd. One example in Texas, they note that Tony Crawford, who's the leader of the Parker County Progressives, said he frequently communicated with his police chief in the days leading up to a July 25th protest in Weatherford, Texas, trying to ensure that police would protect demonstrators. But, notes the Post, when rumors spread on social media that busloads of residents from Dallas and Fort Worth would be coming to the town to tear down the Confederate monuments, hundreds of predominantly white, conservative counter-protesters and members of militant conservative groups gathered at the site, many heavily armed. The police chief there has noted that large crowds are mobilized online by social media posts that give them the impression of imminent danger. They often use images from past protests or riots in other cities, combined with phrases such as, this is happening in Weatherford right now. The police chief added that some posts even claimed the police were asking residents to, quote, come assist us, unquote. And sounding off rather succinctly on this train of thought is uh, Trevor Noah from The Daily Show. A meme of him was sent around recently saying, nobody drives into a city with guns because they love someone else's business that much. That's BS. No one has ever thought, oh, it's my solemn duty to pick up a rifle and protect that TJ Maxx. They do it because they're hoping to shoot somebody. I think he's right. Let's take a brief uh, break in the action here and see if we can't do the good, 
the bad and the ugly, shall we? Quit of the Week magazine, it was a good week this past week about something that happened last November, which is that New York Times reporter Michael Schmidt reported recently that Vice President Pence was told to stand ready to take over the presidency during a still unexplained Trump visit to Walter Reed Hospital last November. Trump, in response, tweeted, Never happened to this candidate. Fake news. He also denied that the hospital trip was made necessary by, quote, a series of mini-strokes, unquote. Schmidt writes in his new book that Pence was put on standby in case Trump had to undergo anesthesia. And in an addendum that I find hilarious, Schmidt says that his book says nothing about mini-strokes. The White House has not provided any details of Trump's Walter Reed stay, saying only the president began portions of his routine annual physical exam while there, which is such a transparent lie that you just have to chuckle. White House physician Sean Conley said the president remains healthy and that Trump did not experience a stroke or heart attack. Well, since the president denies he's had many strokes and the presidential physician says he did not experience a stroke, I think he probably had a mini stroke. What do you think? And it was a bad week last week for staying on message when it was revealed that the Twitter account of the late Herman Cain tweeted that, quote, it looks like the coronavirus is not as deadly as the mainstream media first made it out to be, end quote. Kane died of COVID-19 in July after attending a Trump rally in Tulsa. Oops, it looks like maybe it is as deadly as the mainstream media first made it out to be. And it surely is an ugly week for going back to school this last week. And there's so many stories we could cite here. But how about this one? As more than 1,000 University of Alabama students, faculty, and staff tested positive for coronavirus two weeks after reopening, university officials instructed faculty do not tell the rest of the class if any of the students had been infected. Officials cited the need to respect student privacy as justification for the secrecy, but said one student, there's no transparency. And yes, as reported in the New York Times, it appears that college towns are the new front line in the U.S. pandemic. And here's another ugly item, which surfaced this last week. It appears that Special Counsel Robert Mueller never investigated Trump's possible ties to Russia or whether he was compromised by financial or sexual matters, according to a new book from New York Times' Michael Schmidt. Schmidt quotes, former Justice Department and FBI officials saying that former Deputy Director General Rod Rosenstein secretly ordered Mueller to confine his investigation to criminal matters arising from 2016 Russian election interference. Former FBI Director Andrew McCabe said Rosenstein never told him about the limits put on Mueller, and if he'd known, he would have had the FBI do its own investigation of the national security threat. And an item that we can't decide whether it's good, bad, or ugly, it's maybe a little bit of both, but I I think it's actually a phony baloney piece of reporting. It has been reported that the pilot of an American Airlines jet coming into land at LAX radioed the control tower to report, we just passed a guy in a jet pack at 3,000 feet. Now, this is the kind of thing I'd like to believe. You know, there's some guy flying around a jet pack down in Los Angeles. Reminiscent of the story we told on this program, oh, I'm guessing it must be 15 years ago now, about Lawn Chair Larry. 
Gaio got the idea that he might fly if he attached enough helium balloons to a lawn chair. And, well, it's not exactly flying what he did. Well, I guess it depends on how you define it. Lawn chair Larry apparently rocketed up to 11,000 feet and had to be rescued by helicopter. But my understanding of a jetpack is that you only have enough fuel to do a relatively short flight. It's kind of a problem in aviation. Add more fuel, add more weight. Cuts your time down. So I don't think you can actually take a jetpack up to 3,000 feet, no matter what you may have seen in a James Bond-type movie. But we vow to look into it and report further on next week's program. Because that's the kind of show we are. All right, let's move away from politics and talk more about the virus itself. I do note in the current edition of Medical Economics, it's noted that even though the first wave of COVID-19 cases are still happening, health experts are warning that once the weather gets cooler this fall, a second wave of cases is likely to arrive, to which we add, duh. But Medical Economics, given its uh, predisposition, recommends to physicians that they should prepare for a second wave by ordering PPE now. This is in the August issue, which I only got in September. They say most distributors are allocating monthly supplies of PPE to outpatient clinics, but only a limited amount with each order. By ordering frequently throughout the summer, you should be able to build a decent stockpile before flu season, which is great advice to get in September, isn't it? They do add that for many practices, finding vendors that can sanitize N95 masks has been challenging. This is where partnerships with state resources and national associations may be helpful in finding solutions. Note the word may which I would add, could they be more vague? You know, as Trump admits to Bob Woodward that, you know, I mean, that he knows this is going to be bad, you'd think, you'd think that somewhere along the way they'd have ramped up the ability to test more, except that he's made it clear up to the present that we should be testing less. It makes us look bad. We should be ordering more PPE. We should be ordering more masks. We should be doing all these things that we're just simply not doing. The third panel of that Doonesbury, by the way, had Mike looking at, out at the audience and saying, so why are all the other Western countries doing so much better than ours? Well, everyone knows why. And yes, other Western nations are doing so much better than us because they don't have a leader who's downplaying a pandemic for political reasons. And you know, we need to talk more about how to safely reopen schools. This is going to be such a huge part of our problem here in September and the rest of the fall, and the winter. We're not doing that today. We do want to note that uh, the results seem to be in that the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally was a COVID super spreader event. I like what they said about it in jalopnik.com, which was that anybody with a brain could tell that putting on a gigantic Sturgis Motorcycle Rally this year would be a bad idea. Now we have a scientific study to affirm this was a worst-case scenario, an event that appears to be accountable for perhaps 250,000 cases and future cases of COVID-19 at a public cost of $12 billion. To which they said, excuse me, did I say that Sturgis was the worst-case scenario? What I meant to say with Sturgis was multiple worst-case scenarios rolled into one. As noted by a new paper from IZA Institute of Labor Economics, a nonprofit supported by the Deutsche Post Foundation and affiliated with the University of Bonn, they said, quote, the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally represents a situation where many of the worst-case scenarios for super-spreading occurred simultaneously. The event was prolonged, included individuals packed closely together, involved a large out-of-town population, population orders of magnitude larger than local population, 
and had a low compliance with recommended infection countermeasures, such as the use of masks. The only factors working to prevent the spread of infection was the outdoor venue and the low population density of South Dakota. COVID mitigation efforts at the Sturgis rally were largely left to, quote, the personal responsibility, unquote, of attendees. And the media reported from the scene that the social distancing and mask wearing were quite rare. Some estimates are now that for the month in which the Sturgis rally took place last last month, August, the rally may have been responsible for a fifth of the cases in the entire country. I haven't verified those numbers, but uh, it seems plausible. Even if it's not 250,000, I'm sure it's a lot. And you may have heard that one of the trials currently underway uh, in, in, in to develop a vaccine has been put on hold because a patient had a, a major adverse reaction. Francis Collins of the NIH came forward to reassure us that that shows the process is working as it should, which I suppose is true. But it also emphasizes that hurrying along uh, may not pan out. In 1976, with the threat of a um, swine flu before the nation, Gerald Ford pushed for us to all get vaccinated against this new potential agent. The vaccines were hurried to market, and let's just say it didn't pan out. The swine flu, thankfully, did not emerge that year. Yet the vaccine that was used, it turned out in some cases produced Guillain-Barre syndrome in people, which uh, is, causes nerve damage and, and, and some disability, depending upon the nerves involved. Anyway, writing about uh, this very topic, New Scientist magazine notes, the U.S. President Donald Trump is considering allowing the usual procedures to be bypassed so an experimental coronavirus vaccine can be made available to the public in time for the U.S. election in November, to which we add there's not a chance in hell there's going to be widespread distribution of a vaccine before the November election. But, you know, a few people here and there may get it, and they will probably use a lot of photo ops to say, hey, folks, help is on the way. Anyway, all this talk of getting a vaccine out fast has led to concern that too many shortcuts are being taken in the rush to roll out the vaccine. Danny Altman of Imperial College London was quoted as saying, there's no possible room for movement on the highest safety standards. The COVID vaccines will be given to billions in the biggest ever medical endeavor on planet Earth. This needs to be effective and safe. Imagine even one in 1,000 serious adverse events in a vaccine given to a billion people. Anyway, the normal development process for a vaccine is something that usually takes about a decade. Due to the urgency of this pandemic, researchers and regulatory bodies are trying to eliminate delays and teams are running some phases concurrently in the hope of making the virus in just 12 to 18 months. The normal steps to making a vaccine are as follows. Develop a prototype that usually takes years, but with modern technology, and in the case of coronavirus, they were able to, within hours of knowing the sequence of the virus begin that selection. These new technologies identify the bits of the virus that a vaccine might be able to use. After this, there's animal trials. Then phase one human trials. The first tests in people usually involve 20 to 80 individuals and are used to demonstrate safety and ensure that any side effects aren't too severe, which sometimes they are. In phase two human trials, tests on larger groups reveal a vaccine's efficacy. Some can jump from here to regulatory approval if there's urgent need. That was certainly the case in Russia. 
On August 11th, Vladimir Putin announced that Russia had approved the Sputnik V vaccine for widespread use after only two months of small-scale trials. Normally, Phase three human trials are where a new vaccine is tested on hundreds to thousands of people to clearly evaluate both efficacy and long-term safety. At that point, you look for regulatory approval, after which you see mass production, and then finally, once a vaccine is available in quantity, governments and public health authorities must determine which groups of people get it first. Many are speculating that in, in Donald Trump's America, if we develop a vaccine first, other nations can, can, can stand on the sidelines while, uh, while Americans get shot up. A lot of folks at this point have questions about travel, specifically air travel, and, well, how safe is it to fly in an airplane in the age of coronavirus? I have copies of both The Week and New Scientist that address this very issue in the briefing section of The Week. To the question, how safe is it to fly, the answer was safer than you might think for an activity that involves strangers congregating for long stretches in a cramped metal tube. The CDC says most viruses and other germs do not spread easily on flights. They cite commercial airlines' sophisticated air filtration and circulation systems. I must say, based on direct personal experience of getting sick on airplanes on many occasions, I'm less than reassured by the CDC on this. But they note that airplanes typically refresh their entire air volume every few minutes. Recirculated air is pumped through high-efficiency filters that remove 99.97% of virus-sized particles. They note the primary risk in flying is that an infected passenger could sit next to you or near you and exhale, cough, or sneeze virus-laden droplets that you breathe in before they were filtered out. And there's some conflicting studies on this uh, showing that, yes, some people have gotten sick on airplanes, but uh, there's some evidence that the numbers are not huge. They do note that between flights, planes are routinely sprayed with a fog of electrostatic disinfectant and otherwise sanitized. Most airlines have dialed back food and drink services to cut down on interaction between passengers and crew, and they board planes from back to front to reduce passenger contact. Delta and JetBlue are keeping middle seats empty, while Southwest books flights to no more than two-thirds capacity. Unfortunately, America and United Airlines have no such limits, though both allow passengers to rebook high-volume flights without charge, and they attempt to alert passengers when flights are filling up. If you're going to fly, take a mask. Apparently, all major airlines now mandate them. Sounding off on this topic in New Scientist... They quoted a Julian Tang at the University of Leicester in the UK saying, overall, planes are probably safer than poorly ventilated pubs, which is not, frankly, terribly reassuring to my mind, (laughs) where they note similar densities of people who do not wear masks and talk a lot and loudly are to be contended with. And of course, you know, if you use public transport, the risks you face depend firstly on the odds of an infected person being on the same bus, train, or plane. Thus... Traveling in South Korea, where 1 in 200,000 people test positive every day, is obviously inherently safer than traveling in the U.S., where 1 in 6,000 people are testing positive every day. They do cite an example where an infected couple flew from China to Canada on the 22nd of January, wherein none of the 350 co-passengers on the 15-hour flight were infected. Of course, they note masks were worn. Keep that in mind. By January 22nd, the Chinese were all wearing masks. Anyway, this all seems pretty shaky, but the, conclu- the, the consensus seems to be there are reasons to think the risks are low. 
Many airports check people's temperatures before they board, and airlines now disinfect planes between flights and require passengers to wear masks. They note that the air on planes is also replaced every three to five minutes and that the air is recirculated through HEPA filters that should remove most droplets containing a virus. Yeah, unless the guy sitting next to you is coughing away. Yeah, I'm looking for some harder numbers here, and the best I can do is they say that in the U.S., the risk of infection is about one in 4,000 if a flight is full. That's, that's an estimate from MIT. The geniuses at MIT estimate also that if the middle seats are left empty, the risk falls to 1 in 8,000. Seems like a pretty good reason to leave the middle seat empty, wouldn't you say? Anyway, if and when we get some better data, we'll, we'll be the first to tell you about it. Mr. McMillan's advice, and, and, I, and I would concur with this, is that, you know, take a damn N95 mask and wear it the whole time. If you do that, you know, your risks are probably reasonable. All right, we got about two and a half minutes left, I'm told, and so we need to talk about something else, hopefully amusing. Remember when the show was amusing, at least some of the time? So we're going to close with some selections from the Uncle John's Bathroom Readers series, in this case, about strange laws that are really on the books. Apparently, if you live in Wilbur, Washington, and you have a horse that's ugly, the law prohibits you from riding it down the street. No, we don't know who gets to make the call. Apparently, on any of Nevada's highways, it's illegal to ride a camel. If you're planning to stay in a motel in North Carolina, keep this in mind. It's a crime both to move twin beds together or to make love on the floor. If you're planning to go to Kansas and do some fishing, keep this in mind. Kansas law prohibits you from catching fish with your bare hands. If you're planning a visit to Zion, Illinois, keep this in mind. It is a crime to offer a cigar to a dog, cat, or any other pet. Apparently, you're okay if you offer a pipe or a cigarette. And no, we don't have any idea what motivates people to create some of these laws either. Now, if you're a woman and you plan to visit Morrisville, Pennsylvania, keep this in mind. You are required by law to purchase a permit before wearing lipstick in public. Now, as far as we can tell, if you visit Logan County, Colorado, it is legal to kiss a woman, but illegal if she is asleep. And finally, if you're planning a visit to our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., don't even think about bull throwing. It's illegal. And no, we don't know what it is either. All right, that does it for today's program, Radio Parallax, which was produced by Edward McMillan. And say what you want about him, he's never thrown a bull. And we will continue our discussion in the weeks to come, when we've only got, what, eight weeks left before the election, to discuss what we all can do if Trump loses and refuses to leave. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you then. (laughs) 